We're going to be studying a large section. We're trying to uh, um, look at 15 chapters over about eight weeks, so we're, we're uh, having to study quite large sections um, to uh, get a big grasp of what Isaiah is saying, because he has a very big message in chapter 40 to uh, 55. I'm going to read from chapter 42, first nine verses, on page 727 in the Church Bibles. But we will go back, in fact, to 41, verse 21, and on to 42, verse 17, as we study together. Let me read that central section, then. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, even as we read those words, we have a sense that they have something great to tell us. They, they resound with a sense of majesty and awe, Lord. And yet we confess that we, we cannot understand these words without your help. Please, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, strengthen our wills, that we would see you, and we would be able to respond to you this morning. Whatever our background, whatever our personal history, Lord, speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Stories told of, a, of an evangelical pastor who was taken by a friend of his to the horse races. And he was a little bit uncomfortable. He remembered how he'd often uh, preached against betting. So he was uh, feeling distinctly nervous. He was somewhat surprised to notice that there was a Catholic priest there too. As he watched, the priest went over to a horse and mumbled a prayer over it. The next race, the horse streaked away from the rest of the uh, field and won the race. And the same thing happened at the next race. The priest blessed a horse, and it won. 
The third race, the priest did the same, and, and uh, this pastor, despite his uh, previous remonstrations with his congregation, could no longer resist placing a bet. So he bet five pounds on the blessed horse. That's a lot for a pastor, I can tell you. <laughs> Half a furlong before the end of the race, the pastor's horse was in the lead, streaking away, when suddenly it keeled over and died on the spot. Unable to suppress his disappointment, the pastor went up to the priest and he said, why didn't your blessing work with that last horse? Well, sir, to be sure, said the priest, I can see you're not a good Catholic. The first two I blessed, but this one, this one needed the last rites. <laughs> We're fascinated by the idea of knowing the future, aren't we? Now, there are whole industries devoted to predicting what might happen, you know, whether, whether that's uh, producing horoscopes or weather forecasts or economic forecasts or demographic forecasts or mathematical models of the universe. The future fascinates us. Why, why is that? Well, I think some of it, undoubtedly, is, is, uh, is, is narrow self-interest or idle curiosity. You know, we watch the weather forecast to decide what to do on our day off. We uh, buy those little gadgets that predict the numbers in the lottery because we uh, would love to win a million pounds one day. But I think there is a deeper need as well associated with it, our desire to know the future. So if we can predict the future... It means that we can understand the world. And if we can understand how this world works, and we can have some hope that it's not just a meaningless, random agglomeration of accidents. There's hope that we can perhaps live successfully and purposefully in a world that we can comprehend, in a world that will not creep up on us from behind and, and, and dash all our hopes. See, while the future is a mystery, while the future is unknown to us, and actually it's very difficult to see how anyone can really have any such thing as a confident hope about the future. This morning, Isaiah is going to tell us he knows the future. Indeed, he's actually going to say that his proven ability to predict the future is the basis upon which we must believe that he can uh, continue to predict the future right up until the end of time. He's going to show us what's happening in history. He's going to show us how we can have hope that the future will not catch us by surprise. And all of that, he says, is because he's going to tell us about a faithful servant. That's what we're going to see later. But first of all, he's going to start dealing with the opposition. Those other people who uh, say they can predict the future. 41, chapters, uh, uh, chapter 41, verses 21 to 29. Isaiah 
presents to us a court case. In fact, if you were here last week, you'll remember there were first hints of this uh, courtroom scene right back at the beginning of chapter 41 in verse 1. Let us meet together at the place of judgment, he says there. And at that point, at the beginning of chapter 41, he had the foreign nations primarily in view. But uh, here he's going to become more specific about the defendant in the dock. The de real defendant in the dock is not the nations. He's not fundamentally opposed to the nations at all. No, he's opposed to their gods. They're gods who arrogantly claim to know the future. Let's have our day in court, he says, but you better make sure you bring a good lawyer. Verse 21, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Now, if your gods are worth anything, he says, they will be able to interpret both the past and the future. Verse 22, bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Any so uh, idol, any god worth his salt should be able to do that, he says. More than that, actually. They ought not only to be able to foresee the future, they ought to be able to control the future. Can your idols do that, he says? Verse 23, do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Just for a moment, he says, I'm gonna, not going to mind whether it's something good or whether it's something bad. He says, do anything. Come on. I'm waiting, he says. Just as I suspected, verse 24, you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. Now, he says, let's look at the God of Israel, shall we? Let's look at what evidence there is on his side. This God whom you so despise, verse 25, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. You see, Isaiah, as we saw last week, is talking about King Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia, and he uh, 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 ultimately invaded Babylon and overran it. The people whom Isaiah is actually addressing here can see that Cyrus is going to do that. But actually, just a de few decades before that, Cyrus was a nobody. Cyrus was unknown. Babylon, the great uh, superpower, would have laughed if you'd suggested that Cyrus would be a major ru world ruler, that he would overthrow them. But Isaiah is addressing people who are not laughing at that moment. People who can see that what he says is true. And he says, which of your gods predicted that? Verse 26. Who told of this from the beginning that we could know or beforehand so that we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. Actually, 
funnily enough, uh, we know of several writings from the time of Cyrus that, uh, uh, that do seem to uh, uh, predict elements of Cyrus's career and try to interpret them. A few years uh, before, for instance, uh, Cyrus had overrun another group called the Medes, who were a major superpower. And we've got the record of uh, the dream of the Babylonian king that he had at that time. And uh, this dream reassured the Babylonians that their god Marduk had actually enabled Cyrus to overrun the Medes. Unfortunately, uh, Cyrus then overran the Babylonians and we have a record explaining that. Saying actually how the god Marduk had allowed the Babylonian king to be overthrown um, because in fact he had uh, a secret preference for the moon god Sheen and Marduk wasn't pleased about it. See, once something has happened, once you've seen it happen, when it's perfectly obvious perhaps that it's going to happen, you can, you can think up any number of convincing arguments, can't you? As to why it was happening like that. I mean, just look at the economic pundits at the moment who are telling us how the Far Eastern economic crisis was just absolutely inevitable, it was obvious. Everyone's saying that now. Virtually no one was saying it before it happened. And Isaiah, you see, is not actually writing this down just when it's about to happen, even though he's addressing people who know it is. He's not even writing it down a decade or so before. Isaiah wrote this down over 150 years before it happened. Verse 27. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. He had addressed this in Jerusalem, in Israel, even before Babylon had come and taken them into exile. No one else can do that, he says. Now, some of you who've uh, studied the Bible a lot may be aware that many modern scholars believe that actually this part of Isaiah, chapter 40 and onward, was written long after Isaiah's death by another anonymous author at about the time of Cyrus. And their reason is very simple. Their reason is that they cannot believe that such striking predictions as this could ever have been foreseen over a hundred years before. But that's actually exactly what Isaiah is saying. Actually, uh, it's very interesting. We will see over the next few chapters that there are some very striking predictions of Jesus. Hundreds of years after that. Predictions that uh, seem to be fulfilled in some cases in, 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 in quite minute detail. And if, if you go back to the earlier part of this century, you will find scholars who believed that those parts of Isaiah must have been written after the time of Jesus. They said it must be so, because it couldn't possibly have been that Isaiah or anyone else could have foreseen the life of Jesus in just this detail. But actually, then a shepherd boy 
discovered uh, what have been since called the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of them written before the time of Jesus. And amongst those scrolls was a copy of Isaiah, complete as we have it now. And suddenly all those scholars, all those pundits who so confidently said that this was a late addition, disappeared. So again and again, whenever in fact there has been sufficient evidence to verify the authenticity of things that are said in the Old Testament, it's been shown to be true. Isaiah says, I am telling you what will happen over a hundred years before, before it happens. Which of your gods has done that? He says, verse 28, I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. Perhaps you can imagine him, can't you? Standing at the end of the 20th century, looking back and saying, Karl Marx, you who said that a revolution was simply the, uh, to ease the birth pangs of a wonderful new order. What's happened to your predictions after Lenin and Stalin? You know, all you optimistic humanists of the 19th century who said that we were heading towards a 20th century of unparalleled peace and prosperity. All you blind prophets who said that the First World War was the war to end, world, uh, end all wars. Doesn't the reality of the 20th century makes you hang your heads in shame? Adolf Hitler, you who said the Nazi Reich would reign for a thousand years. What's happened to your predictions? Pol Pot, you who said that your great revolution was year zero, a whole new era for the world. What's happened to your predictions? And yes, says Isaiah, you smirking upholders of capitalism, you, you overconfident prophets of liberal democracy, you've watched every other ideology fall at the end of this 20th century. But do you think in the long run your predictions are going to fare any better? Can't you already see the signs of your demise, Jesus? The greatest democracy on earth, consumed by petty scandals and power struggles, with the fastest growing economies in history, now, in fact, threatening to implode on themselves. Every superpower in history, every ruling ideology in history has said the future belongs to us and every single one of those powers has disappeared in time. Verse 29, see, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. That's my evidence to the court, says Isaiah. And I don't honestly think the jury even though it needs to go out to consider its verdicts. But he says, now I'm going to tell you something more. Now I'm going to give you an even bigger picture. Now I'm going to look beyond Cyrus. 
Now I'm going to give you a, a privilege, he says, which is, which is infinitely more inspiring than the privilege that John Glenn has right now. He can see the whole world mapped out below him, but I'm going to show you the whole of history mapped out. I'm going to give you a greater prediction. Verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. There's actually a fascinating connection between the end of chapter 41 and, and uh, uh, the beginning of 42, which is lost in the translation. There's a little, little word that, which the King James Version actually translates. Uh, he, uh, the King James translates it as, Behold. It's found in uh, uh, 41, verse 24. Behold, says God, you are less than nothing to these idols. It's found again in the last verse of 41, summarizing the idols. Behold, he says, they are false. And then the same word is found at the beginning of chapter 42. Behold, here is my servant. If you open your eyes, says Isaiah, you will see both the uselessness of all your false ideologies and the truth of this prediction that I am going to make. I am going to tell you about a servant, a faithful servant. First nine verses of chapter 42, Isaiah says that it is the faithfulness of this servant which is the key to the future. First of all, God speaks about him. God's servant is, is personally sustained by God. This is the one whom I uphold, he says. He is personally chosen by God, my chosen one. He is personally loved by God, in whom I delight. He is personally empowered by God. I will put my spirit on him. And therefore, he will achieve what no other person, no other ideology, no other political power, no other God has ever achieved. He will bring justice by to the nations. And he won't do it, says Isaiah, by mounting a great big political campaign by spending millions on smooth talking, self exalting advertising in the midterm elections, like a some aspiring world leaders would do. Verse 2 He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, nor, says Isaiah, will he do it by trampling on the weak, as many people do who are thirsty for power. In fact, it will be the damaged the almost hopeless members of society who will be at the very centre of his affections. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. But he is not going to be stopped, says Isaiah. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Actually, there's a, a little, another little verbal allusion which really brings this uh, uh, to life. Isaiah uses uh, a, an almost identical word, a word from the same family, for the, for the word uh, translated bruised in verse 3, the bruised reed, and discouraged in verse 4. It meant, it, it meant 
basically to be damaged. And similarly, he uses an almost identical word for the word smoldering in verse 3 and the word falter in verse 4. So he's saying he won't break a damaged person because he won't be damaged himself. He won't snuff out a, a person whose spirits are burning low and he will not burn low himself. Yes, he will be infinitely patient, infinitely caring, infinitely loving towards those who are weak and broken, and he will sustain that forever with absolute success because he is not going to be broken. He is not going to lose his energy. He will keep going. And he is going to keep going to bring justice. Not just justice for a few either. Not just justice for Israel. Not just justice for the, the chosen people. No. This is going to be justice for the world. Verse 1, he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not falter till he establishes justice on earth. That's what this servant's going to do, he says. And then from speaking about this servant, God, God the, the awesome creator and sustainer of all things, starts speaking to this servant. Verse 5. This is what the God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. I have called you, he says. I will guide you by the hand, he says. I will make you a covenant, he says. Interesting, only co the only covenants that Israel knew up to that point were, were written documents of obligations and assurances. But somehow God says, this servant in his very person will be an absolute assurance from me that he will not be thwarted. And this is your task, servant, he says, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This servant is going to be a liberator from blindness and bondage. He is going to set people free. Who is he? Well, actually, you know, the vital thing for us to understand at this point is it could be Israel. Israel's been quite, uh, Isaiah's been quite specific, as we saw last week in chapter 41, verse uh, 8, if you want to turn back to it, that Israel is God's chosen servant. If Israel gets its act together, the nation could be God's faithful servant. God's plan always was 
that he should use mankind to save mankind. But what if Israel fails? After all, Israel has failed in the past. We're going to learn in just uh, 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 next week that Israel uh, would fail again. Are all these great predictions then that Isaiah has made just dependent upon Israel living up to this standard of being the faithful servant? Does it actually mean that God is, un is uncertain about the future, even though he makes these great promises? Well, no, it doesn't. Isaiah makes that absolutely plain. There is a passion, there is a determination, there is an absolutely unstoppable commitment in God's heart that nothing in all eternity can thwart. Do you see how he uh, ends in verse 8? I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to, uh, to idols. The fulfilment of God's purpose in history depends upon his absolutely de de determination that a world created by him, a world sustained by him, a world loved by him, a world uh, uh, that, that in the end owes absolutely everything to him, must not, will not commit the unthinkable atrocity of glorifying something which is nothing, of praising something which is utterly useless. I am the Lord. I will not give my glory to another. So how will he do it? If Israel the servant fails... We're going to see in more detail over, over the coming weeks, but uh, we must just glance at that this week. Because Israel did fail. There was no servant that lived up to this great prediction. So God decided he would have to be the servant. The fact that it had always been his plan. He always knew it would be necessary. He would have to be both the one who chooses and the one who is chosen. He would have to be the one who calls and the one who is called. He would have to be the one who holds the servant's hand and the servant whose hand is held. He would have to be the one who makes the covenant and the one who keeps the covenant. He would have to come as God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. Over two and a half thousand years later, we can see how this has been fulfilled. We've seen it in the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says he is this faithful servant. He is the fulfillment of that. But that plan didn't just end in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It continues. That promise continues right until the end of time. He will not falter. And we've seen that down through the history. We've, see, we've seen it in the, the witness and influence of the ministry of God's church down through the ages. If you look at the history of the world, ideologies have come and gone, haven't they? It's amazing if you look at, uh, look at uh, uh, the history of the church. 
you know, in the first few centuries of the church's life, the worship of Caesar, the emperor of Rome, was a great threat to the church. It's a historical curiosity now, but at one point it looked like it might snuff out the church. The emperor Constantine was converted and suddenly there was freedom for Christians. And then the Roman Empire fell and Goths and Visigoths and Vandals, all those uh, funny tribes with pagan backgrounds came in and started, started overthrowing all those areas that had been uh, uh, securely held. And it looked like Christianity might be snuffed out again. But evangelists went out and converted the Goths and Visigoths and Vandals and established a church amongst them. And so on it goes down through, through, uh, through history. There was a point when Christianity was confined rather narrowly to Western Europe and America. And then began the great uh, missionary enterprise. So that now there are people from almost every nation who have discovered the justice of Christ, the love of Christ, were worshipping Christ. There was a time in the 19th century when uh, uh, Darwin's great theory of evolution was hailed as the death knell of belief in God. God is dead, said some of the most radical people of those days. But actually today, Darwinian evolution is a theory in crisis and the church is growing. The church always, in every age, has faced powers that looked more powerful than itself. Always. It's always, in every age, had pundits who said, it'll die out before long, or it will be corrupted. And every age has passed, and the dominant ideologies have gone. And Christ has marched on. He will not falter. He will not be discouraged till he brings justice to the nations. Everyone then who has read what Isaiah writes knows the future. God who fulfilled his promises in the past will fulfill them again right up until the end of time. Verse 9. See, the former things have taken place. New things I declare. Before they spring into, a be into being, I announce them to you. That's what the future holds, he says. And that, says Isaiah, is a cause for celebration. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise to the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice 
Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. And a shout he will ra- with a shout he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. To be a Christian, says Isaiah, is to be filled with an inexpressible joy because we have seen what God is doing in this world. We have seen his quiet but unstoppable victory. Whenever the Bible, you know, talks about a new song, it's always talking about a song of victory, a song where God has intervened and made the the world decisively new. And so a new song is the only way that people can express that. You know where the final new song is found? It's found in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and nation. Christians know the future. That victory has not yet been fully realized. And the realizing of it is painful. Painful actually even to God himself, says Isaiah, verse uh, uh, 14. For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. You see, to fulfill this, again, Isaiah will tell us in a a few chapters' time, the servant had to suffer. And he just gives us a hint of this. God himself is going to be in pain to fulfill this. But he is going to do it. It will come to birth. Like a woman in childbirth, there will be a period of pain, but there will be a glorious birth as well. There will be terrible times ahead, he says, on this path to victory. Verse 15, I will lay waste the mountains and hills, dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands, dry up the pools. There will be judgment that needs to happen. But God will lead his dependent people with utter faithfulness. He will expose the failures of those who set themselves up against him. Verse 16, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, they will be turned back in utter shame, he says. That's the big picture then. He has established it by a court case. He has predicted that this faithful servant will come and will not stop. And he says, all that you need to do now is celebrate this. Though there will be pain, there is great celebration. Now, I don't know, honestly, how God is going to apply that to you. 
Because it's a very big picture, isn't it? I've been struggling to think of all the different ways that that might make a difference to you. Really, we could go on for hours. You know, it may be that you honestly don't believe that God is in control in that way. Well, all I can say is look at the evidence. Open your eyes. It's clear to see. It may be that you are feeling like this bruised reed, like this smouldering uh, wick, and uh, you sense personally that you might be broken, that you might be snuffed out. You are blind and you might lose your way. Well, there is an absolute assurance that this faithful servant will not let you go. Maybe that you had been putting far too much trust in something else in your life. But actually you were fundamentally committed in the end to some other source of security. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your bank balance. Maybe it's your job. Well, says Isaiah, every one of those disappears in a moment. But the servant will bring justice. And that, says Isaiah, when it really captures our hearts, will make our hearts sing. Let's pray. Lord, we so easily lack courage to live out our, our Christian lives with, with integrity, knowing that you will give victory. Please, Lord, Give us courage. We so easily lack confidence, Lord, to eschew all false forms of security and to seek our security in you. Please, Lord, give us confidence. Some of us here, Lord, sense that uh, we have never really put our trust in you. Never really realised for ourselves where this world is going and what it means to be led by the victorious servant. For us, Lord, help us to respond in concrete ways to this great message and give us peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.